Hello everyone. Today I am here with Pascal Dongoisi and Gabriela Perdomo. Please do correct me if I pronounce either of those wrong. Dongoi. Dongoi. Thank you so much. Uh, they are both PhD candidates at the University of Ottawa in the Department of Communication. So I read both your article and also I unfortunately couldn't get access to the full study, but I did read the abstract of the study. And I was wondering if uh, you could explain what the, juxta what the juxtaposition between Justin Trudeau's speeches and his policies, like what about it implies that he is a neoliberal feminist and what does that exactly entail? Do you want to go, Gabriella, or do you want me to start? Um, I can give you um, just kind of like a background of what we did for the um, scientific article so that you you kind of know exactly where we're coming from. So what we did is we took three years worth of the prime minister's official speeches. So the ones that means the ones that are available on a website on his official website. These are speeches that were anything from um, addressing the House of Commons to being at the UN in a general assembly or visiting a foreign country. Uh, most of those speeches are before big uh, global audiences, but there are also some more specific, uh, for example, addressing the Assembly of First Nations in Canada. So we took that um, wide range of speeches and then we analyzed them. We did um, a content analysis, trying to determine where this feminist stance um, appeared or manifested. So the, the reason why we did that is because the prime minister in several occasions declared that he was a feminist. He was a, a proud feminist, a very vocal one. So we wanted to see that um, how, how that stands or, the, or how that, that perception of himself as a feminist really manifested in his um, speeches. And what we did was just go paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, um, throughout all of those speeches, we were together just pouring over the speeches and trying to categorize um, whenever, you know, kind of flag whenever he would have something that could be categorized as a feminist stance. So we took feminist literature to try to understand, you know, to categorize really what, what would be a feminist stance. So for example, um, did he talk about gender equality in general? Did he talk about um, issues that are generally understood as gendered issues, such as uh, childcare, for example? We know that childcare is primarily a gender issue because there tends to be an imbalance in how much women put work into childcare versus men, et cetera. So those kind of things. We also um, flagged any time that he mentioned violence against women. And then we try to go as far as seeing, um, you know, what kind of feminism, if anything, was uh, manifesting in his speeches. So that's kind of like the gist of the project. <clears throat> Uh, I can I can follow up a little bit on, on what Gabriella said. So in terms of how did we match up the speeches with um, a neoliberal perspective that that uh, we believe Trudeau um, kind of uh, believes in more strongly, maybe probably subconsciously. We don't know. We can't really determine that. You know, we don't know where it comes from. Um, but it's because the terms that came out were related. A lot more to the to the economy um, than it did uh, to you know feminist issues. And when when feminist issues were discussed, they were discussed within an economic perspective on how um, you know, for example, women bringing women to to the big boys' table 
uh, is good for the economy. So it's not that it's good for women per se, it's good for the economy. So it's always within this, this, this tunnel of the economy. And um, a lot of it was also very individualistic. So helping uh, women achieve their career goals, but not necessarily talking about a general or collective or, you know, bottom up approach to problem solving. So that's how we determined um, this neoliberal perspective within, within a Trudeau's discourse. And we only did look at the discourse. I mean, there's many, many ways to look at feminism. You know, sometimes actions speak louder than words. So we really just focused on his official speeches. There, there would be other areas to look at for sure. And what about only focusing on uh, the economy or class in feminism is so dangerous and why is it so important to also address uh, race, ability, uh, nationality, et cetera? Good question. You can go ahead, Gabriella. We can start with you and then I'll, I'll, I'll follow up with. Sure, I mean, um, so even though certain um, approaches to uh, economic empowerment, for example, as a form of, of feminism, um, are have proven important. For example, you know, we, we know that women's economic security is very important, for example, so that they, they can escape, um, uh, you know, dangerous relationships, for example, or so that they can, they can thrive on their own without depending on, on others. But on the other hand, we also see that this approach tends to privilege a certain type of women, or these, uh, especially when you're talking about formulating policy. Um, when you are thinking about um, economic empowerment, sometimes, especially when in terms of career, you're thinking about maybe educated women, women who already have maybe a more privileged position in the world. And we are saying, you know, as long as we give you that economic empowerment, you should thrive. There should be no reason for you not to thrive. And by that, we are implying that there are no other barriers to um, a woman's success other than her economic empowerment. Whereas, of course, we know from, you know, from, from years and years of research that um, certain women face different barriers to advancing their careers or advancing economically, such as, you know, women of color are not promoted at the same rate as white women, for example, or immigrants who might not master the language just as well as a local um, face different types of barriers. And there are those combinations, um, you know, those intersectional identities that the moment that they intersect with that um, power, they face different dynamics. So the, the problem of approaching everything as from the perspective of the economy is that you are only focusing on one um, of the barriers that women face and you are ignoring others that might actually be more difficult to address as a society, but that ultimately are the ones who are really going to bring us to that next level. Um, I think it, it also relates to the fact that um, certain, certain areas that need to be tackled um, in terms of systemic discrimination can be tackled with more money being thrown at it. Um, it needs to, to be looked at, you know, whether it's racism or ableism or, or, or sexism, um, certain things come with, with the culture. So if you don't, you can't throw money at culture, that doesn't work. You need to look at it from a different stance. So one example that I like to give is 
um, in the in the late 70s, 80s, there was a very big push to get more women educated. Uh, they were thinking, you know what, if the problem is that women are not being educated. So if we get them at the same level of education as men, you know, and we, we have scholarships and we have bursaries and we fund high schools and we fund programs for education, then problem solved. You know, it's because women are not educated. And currently we're, I think there's more women with a bachelor's degree than men. So I think we're at 52, 49 or something. It's very close, but generally speaking, women and men are equally educated. However, women are still getting paid less. Uh, women are still unable to reach the higher levels of organizations, societies. Um, they're still, you know, choosing to go into very gender, you know, gender biased roles in terms of, of teaching, nursing, um, and all these things. And that you, you can't change that by, by encouraging monetarily something. You need to look at why is it that women choose to be nurses instead of doctors? Why is it that men choose to be doctors instead of nurses? You know, so that's, that's cultural, that's systemic. So that's why it's important to look at it in, in different terms than just um, monetary value. And I know that you guys mentioned the importance of also making sure that gendered issues are actually recognized as gendered. Uh, do you guys think that gender neutralization and feminism can coexist or what do you think the argument for that would be and why is it possibly flawed? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Pascal, because you're the feminist scholar. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that's a very rich debate that has been going on for, for ages. Um, the consensus for, for, you know, I would say in recent years has been that gender neutralizing has the effect of actually erasing um, issues that need to be called with a name. So for example, um, when you say, let's eradicate domestic violence in general, you um, risk not understanding that domestic violence, the research has shown us that is mostly suffered by women. Um, and if you don't recognize that fact, then the policies that you are going to formulate are not going to help the, the majority of the population that um, has that problem. And I would say it works perfectly uh, the same in, in a different, and you know, with another gender that you can say um, domestic violence against trans people is probably very different than the one that is suffered by heterosexual women or domestic violence by uh, homosexual men. You know, like you, it's probably very different uh, as an experience for them. And, and policies should recognize all of those instances so that you can, it doesn't mean that you have to favor a group over another. That is a common misunderstanding. Um, and, and maybe, yeah, it's easier to just say, well, well, we'll just work on ending domestic violence. But when you, when you decide to not look at the particulars of who really is suffering and which identities are suffering, you know, quite frankly, more than others or, or in a different way than others, then you risk just not getting at the, at the real problem and, and not being able to address those issues um, appropriately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it goes into the whole... Um, also, the whole philosophy of what is, you know, uh, a productive Canadian citizen. And so that, that came up a lot in the speeches, 
the Canadian citizen, the Canadian citizen. Um, and going back, you know, years and years back, there, so many groups have tried to reclaim the, what that means. Because what if you're uh, a, a less physically abled person or more physically abled, and so your, your, your productivity, your economic uh, pr productivity is maybe not the same as somebody who's CEO of a company. Does that make you less of a citizen in the, in the sense that you can't um, contribute the same way and so you don't deserve the same uh, you know, safety net or the same security when you're walking down the street or the same kind of housing as somebody else. So all these factors are very important. It's very important to look at this in a, in a very intersectional way um, to understand how the system is working for or against certain uh, identities. And I'm curious of what made you guys decide to use the research you did on Justin Trudeau and apply that to Christia Freeland and how you sort of came to the conclusion that she might be a similar case? Um, you can go ahead, Gabriella. Yeah, I think it, it was it was definitely something that we really wanted to, um, it, it kind of came to us, I don't know, Pascal had this idea of, uh, um, you know, we obviously followed the news, especially what's going on with, with Trudeau because we were you know, pouring over our data for so long. And when Christian Freeland was um, nominated to be finance minister, she also mentioned that she was a feminist and she presents a really interesting opportunity to um, examine again, what, what does it mean first when a politician in a leading position says they're a feminist? Because this is fairly new, you know, we have not a lot of examples. We don't have a lot of examples of politicians in, in, in real positions of power. Um, you know, like a prime minister or a finance minister stating that they're feminists. So for us, it was important to see first because, you know, she's a very well-respected politician here in Canada and internationally, I would say, and uh, she is the woman. So there are other things that are interesting to, to examine there. She's also a privileged white woman, of course, but it was interesting to see. We wanted to talk about her on the one hand, but also her as a member of a cabinet led by the prime minister that we have been examining as a feminist. So for us, it was, it was important because she mentioned it and because of the context. So as you know, um, COVID and the, uh, all of the repercussions of the COVID policies have affected um, women especially hard. So it was very important for us to kind of um, question that and, you know, like, okay, this is really the moment when a feminist government, you know, or a self-described feminist mo uh, government is going to have to show what it really means in terms of um, its feminism. Yeah, I think it also brings a really interesting um, perspective when we talk about, um, again, I, I go back to that a lot, but systemic discrimination and how it's within our culture, our values. Um, and you know, you, you may think that you're doing certain things right because you've been raised a certain way and you've been thinking about certain things for a long time and, and, and it, it gets ingrained in how you, you develop the policies, how you, you, you speak to, to uh, an audience and things like that. And feminism is a path to something. You know, you, you change, you develop your, your, your way of thinking based on your experiences. And 
I hope I'm a better feminist now than I was, you know, previously, hopefully. <laughs> but it's a work in progress. And so it's interesting to see how, how will Krista Freeland's feminism, which I, I feel may be a very ne neoliberal feminism, uh, work within, you know, other types of feminism that maybe don't agree with neoliberal feminism. So there could be a clash there. And a lot of, a lot of people have this, this thinking that, oh, she's a woman, so she's a feminist. You know, or they have this concept of feminism that, you know, doesn't necessarily always coincide with all the other types of feminism. So having a woman as a, as, as a very strong leader in Canada saying she's a feminist, but then look at it and see how there's systemic problematic um, issues within that feminism is very interesting because it breaks down a lot of the concepts that, that we've had about what is actually good for, for women's empowerment or women's equality. And to you guys, what would a true green feminist equitable recovery look like and how maybe might that differ from what Freeland has suggested or the approach she might take or has taken? It's a hard question, but I think it's fair. I think it's, um, you have to first one that would um, identify clearly the consequences that this um, crisis has had on women in particular, also on other marginalized communities. So bear in mind that feminism is not just about like kind of like bringing women to to the top and then forgetting about everyone else right like it, uh, feminism especially as we understand it as intersectional feminism really sees how different identities intersect with power so it would be very important um you know a truly feminist recovery would help those in need first the most vulnerable first you would acknowledge um first and foremost who has been uh, the hardest hit and, and and i think in that sense um that small part of the equation is is kind of there like the government has acknowledged that you know immigrant communities are being the hardest hit um the people who live in you know crowded households uh, the first respondent the people who are in like in the front lines of the pandemic are usually racialized people etc so all of those factors would factor in i think also recognizing um, as you just mentioned the word green, like that the recovery has to have a massive major central component of uh, environmental justice because this is, it, it has proven, you know, it has been proven over and over again that it is these same populations, vulnerable populations that have been and will increasingly be affected um, by policies that just don't look at the environment as a central as a central issue so that a true feminist recovery has to be green um so i'll, I'll let pascal maybe say a couple more things but i would yeah, say no, i i 100 agree with with gabriella it has it has to be green 100 percent, because the the environment the the climate crisis affects women much more so than than men in many many ways um and if you're interested you can look into ecofeminism which is also also very interesting um, feminist uh, strand. Um, there is that, and I'll, I'll give you a, a, small, um, a small example of how, uh, so you're from New York, right? The United, 
you're from you're yeah. in the states, right? Yeah. So um, I'm not quite sure how how it happened in the states, but in Canada, right in the first couple of, of weeks um, that we were quarantined, confined, that we can go to work. You know, a lot of people lost their jobs. Some weren't able to do their job because they were also taking care of children, taking care of of family members, um, and a lot of the women took took the hit economically to this hit and so um serb so the canadian economic response um and benefits were yeah were rolled out and um it's only a couple of weeks after that they realized it only really helps mostly men who had lost you know their their one steady job and then we look at like women have you know two or three part-time jobs or they part-time and so they couldn't they, they weren't allowed to, to get this this extra money because they didn't fit into this very strict category of what work is and they did acknowledge oh okay we forgot this whole <laughs> this this whole um group of people and then they changed the policies regarding serve but you know it takes it takes people looking at it and looking at the policies and how they affect people in a very real way, not in a theoretical way, a very real, real way. Who needs it? Why? How? So uh, we were lucky enough that it was changed. Uh, it, there's still a few problems with it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, everything can always be perfected. But um, that's what we mean by, you know, looking at at it with with a, a gender, with a a, a gender policy you know you have to look at it with with a gender lens yeah yeah I think in New York I mean I knew I've heard the term she session be used to describe this and I I didn't know actually about the stimulus checks that that was another aspect that was unequal but I I would imagine it's a similar situation in America anyway thank you guys so much for doing this I really appreciate it it was really insightful oh it's great it's, it's a lot of fun to talk about our research <laughs> yeah I know it is thank you for your interest Thank you.